Only Jesus, the perfect God-man, can bridge the infinite gap between holy God and sinful people. Salvation is the greatest work God does, and we glorify God when we ask Jesus to save people. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. in the Gospel of John, uh, not the Old Testament as the average rabbi would say, but at any rate, um, and we're in the last week of our Lord Jesus Christ's life on earth. It's Thursday night, and Jesus and his disciples are in an upper room celebrating the Passover feast. The disciples at this stage are very anxious, very confused, and very stressed. Let me set the stage. Jesus has just told them that one of the 12 who's been hanging out together for the last three years, one of the 12 is going to betray him. And then he dismisses Judas. Number two, he's been telling them several months now, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave and die for the sins of the world. And they have no idea what he's talking about. Now he tells them, I'm leaving and where I'm going, you cannot come. So we are going to be physically separated And that creates stress in their life. Then he tells Peter, the leader of the twelve, you are going to betray me. By the way, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, and I'm going to let him sift you like wheat. I will pray for you, but I'm not going to stop that temptation. And lastly, he says, before the night's over, every single one of you twelve is going to abandon me you're going to run like scared chickens before this evening is over. And needless to say, they are very upset, very agitated, and they believed that the promised Messiah was going to come as a ruling king, set up his kingdom in Israel, and rule the world. And now they have built their dreams on Jesus, they have depended on Jesus, and he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to leave you. And their dreams are shattered. And Jesus gives them and us words of perspective and comfort. This chapter, especially the first part, is very familiar. If you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard at some point or another the first six, seven verses of uh, John 14 used in that service as a word of comfort from the Lord as we are dealing with the stress on the loss of a loved one. Let's pick up the narrative in John 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Here's the principle. We can have peace because we have a person to trust, a place to belong, and a promise for the future. We can have peace because we have a person to trust, a place to belong, and a promise for the future. What is often not mentioned, the most obvious connotation with verse 1 is that Jesus gives us a command. Do not let your heart be troubled. Troubled means stirred up agitated, anxious, upset, fearful. And Jesus says in our modern lingo, stop stressing out. Chill. Relax. Stop doing what you're currently doing. You are currently letting your heart be troubled, upset, uptight. You can stop that. Stop it. Now, whenever God gives us a command, he also gives us the capability to obey the command. So when the Lord commands you to do something, you can do it because he will give you the ability to do it. It's possible to control our emotions. We can choose to stop being fearful regardless of circumstances. 
And Jesus gives us three reasons why we can stop being anxious and upset. Reason number one, we can have peace because we have a person to trust, a person to trust. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus said to his disciples, look, you trust the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is a spirit. He does not have a physical body. You've never seen him. You never touched him. But you believe in him. Appearances of God in the Old Testament were extremely rare. You got a handful of times Jesus showed up as a theophany. Visions of God in the Old Testament were extremely rare. And yet God's people, the Israelites, trusted a God they could not see because they saw his actions. Manna in the wilderness, water from the rock, the Red Sea, the Exodus, the ten plagues God provided for them. All these centuries, all these centuries. So God is invisible, and yet God is all-powerful. All-knowing, all-wise, everywhere present, completely worthy of our trust. Jesus says, you believe in God, that's an indicative. You do. They did. And here's the imperative, the command. Believe also in me. This is a claim to deity. Now, ask yourself, would the disciples have plenty of reasons to believe that Jesus is God? Was there enough evidence for them to believe that Jesus was God? I mean, they've been with Jesus 24-7 for over three years. For three years, whatever they needed, whenever they needed, Jesus provided it. If someone was sick, don't call the doctor. Jesus would heal them, right? If a crowd is hungry, don't go to the grocery store. Jesus would create bread for 20,000 people. If a violent storm comes up on the Sea of Galilee, don't put your life preservers on. Wake Jesus up. He'll command the storm stop, and it stops, right? If somebody dies... You don't have to call a mortician. Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And he does come forth. Every time there's verbal attacks on Jesus, every time there's death threats, and there were a lot of death threats, every time there's attempts on his life, attempted murders, Jesus was supernaturally preserved without harm. Every time the disciples woke up for the last three years, Jesus is physically present with them, and he provides whatever they need. So they have absolute evidence that Jesus is God. They have seen him operate like this for over three years. And Jesus has been telling them for months now, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. I came from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. Jesus is saying, look, because I'm God, there is nothing outside my control. And those who follow me have no reason to fear because nothing can thwart my sovereign will. One of my favorite scriptures on this is Jeremiah 32, 17. The prophet is speaking. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And what's the next five, six words? You need to underline these and brand them on your heart. Nothing is too difficult for you. Write it down. Don't look at me. Nothing is too difficult for you. Some of you have circumstances right now, and you're not sure that's true because your circumstances are drowning you. You feel like you're in over your head. You can't touch the bottom. You've got sand in your mouth. You're going down for the third time. Nothing is too difficult for our God. Nothing. So we can have the capacity to choose to stop being anxious, stop being worthy, because Jesus is trustworthy. And whatever problem you face, Jesus is greater than your problem. So Jesus gives them a reason not to fear. Number one, you have a person to trust. He gives them another reason. You have a place to belong, an eternal place to belong. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now the Father's house he's talking about is heaven. Your old KJV probably says mansions. That's an unfortunate translation. It really is dwelling places. The Bible refers to heaven 532 times. So God must have thought it was important for you and I to know what heaven's all about because he mentions it an awful lot. Sometimes the scripture calls heaven a country because it's huge. Sometimes the Bible calls heaven a kingdom 
because it's got order and rules and there's a king on a throne. Sometimes heaven's called paradise because it's beautiful and ordered. Sometimes heaven is called a city because it has many inhabitants. Here, Jesus calls it my father's house because he's talking about heaven being a family, a family. The father's house is a huge building that contains many rooms, many apartments, many suites where people live. And what he's emphasizing here is not the opulence of heaven. He says, there's going to be enough rooms even for you. We will never run out of room in God's house. You will never see a no vacancy sign in heaven if you come into the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There's going to be room in God's heaven. All those who believe in God, all those who believe in Christ will go into their Father's house when they leave earth. That's the reason you don't have to be anxious. Now, here's the word picture. In the, in the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, when a son began, became engaged, son's going to get married, right? What happens is the father and the son build an addition onto the family home. They build a series of rooms onto the existing family home for the new couple to live in. And after the marriage, they have a dwelling place waiting for them when they come back from the honeymoon. There's a place they can live on the family compound because they built a series of additions to the father's house. That's the word picture that God is talking about. Heaven is his father's house, and there are many, many rooms obviously built and waiting. If you want a glimpse of what the father's house looks like, all you do is read Revelation 21. Heaven is not a mental construct. It's an actual physical place. After Christ reigns for a thousand years on earth, the last judgment will occur, and God will destroy this present sin-saturated physical universe And then it says he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And the capital city of the new earth is going to be called New Jerusalem. And God's going to prepare New Jerusalem and send it down from heaven, apparently, to hover over the new earth. It'll be almost like its own planet. We know how big it is because Revelation 21 tells us it's going to be 1,500 miles cubed. 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. Now, if you take just two dimensions, let's just take a look at the bottom floor of this structure, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide. That's 2,250,000 square miles. I'm talking about that's the bottom's floor of this house. That's just the bottom story, the ground level. You have 1,500 miles high for other floors for additional rooms. That's a pretty big skyscraper, right? Now, just by way of comparison, if the New Jerusalem is 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 miles, the moon is about 2,159 miles in diameter, a little over 2,100 miles in diameter. So the capital city of the New Earth is going to be slightly smaller than the moon. The creation scientist Henry Morris once calculated that a city, 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500, could easily hold 20 billion people and only use 75% of the space. If that's true, your apartment for 20 billion people would be 75 acres. Even with all your junk, 75 acres might be enough for some of you. But as we know, if you have more space, you tend to fill it up with stuff. So some of you might live in cluttered heavenly apartments. I'm only joking, right? I don't think there's going to be any trash in heaven, right? And this is just the capital city. We haven't even talked about the new earth, let alone the new heaven. Jesus is saying, you've got an eternal dwelling place to go. Stop losing your cookies over what's happening in this life, right? He says, look, if heaven's otherwise, I will tell you, I'm completely trustworthy. And since I created it all, my word is trustworthy. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now, some people like to point out that, you know, Jesus was a carpenter, he's a technon, he probably was a stonemason, there's not exactly a lot of wood growing in in Israel. He's been busy building their mansion in heaven for 2,000 years. Well, probably not. 
Jesus, the Creator, spoke the entire universe into existence in six days, actually saying, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the truth is, since he spoke the universe into existence in six days, it's highly unlikely that Jesus is busy sawing two-by-fours together building your mansion (laughs) at this point, right? Actually, preparation has to be done, though. Preparation has to be done for there to be a place in heaven for you, for there to be a place to be prepared for you, Jesus had to die, be resurrected, and be exalted. Jesus prepares a place for us in heaven by dying for our sins on the cross and then conquering sin and death through his resurrection and ascension. Because if he doesn't do that, there is no place in heaven for you. Because sinful humans cannot enter the presence of holy God unless their sin problem is taken care of by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we can call heaven home because Jesus Christ has paid our sin debt. So we can stop being anxious. One, we have a person to trust, the Lord Jesus Christ. And two, we have a place to belong. And three, we have a promise for the future. What does Jesus say next? He says, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised, I'm coming back and I'm going to bring you to where I am. I'm not leaving you on planet Earth after death. Some years ago, there was a newspaper contest and the people of Britain were asked for a prize. They were asked to define the word home. How would you define home? The poet Robert Frost said, home is a place when you show up, they have to take you in. (laughs) Not they want to take you in, they have to take you in. The winning definition from this Britain contest is, home is the place where people treat you the best and you complain the most. (laughs) Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Now, heaven is a place where you'll be welcomed by Jesus, you'll be welcomed by your spiritual brothers and sisters, and you won't complain about anything because your sin nature will be gone. It will be done. And those nasty people that you're not sure are getting there will be there. (laughs) And they'll be surprised to see you. They'll say, how did you get in? And you'll say, Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. And they'll say, yeah, I figured that was the only way you were going to get in. So Jesus says, look, I'm coming back. He's told them I'm leaving, and they're going, oh my goodness, he's leaving, like forever. He says, no, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. We call this the rapture of the church, right? At the rapture, Jesus doesn't come all the way back to earth to judge, but he calls his own, and they meet him in the air, and they'll be with him forever. This is called the blessed hope. It's the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ for for those who believe in him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 says, for the Lord himself, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, rapturo, harpazo, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the great comfort. So we shall ever, always, forever, and ever, what? Be with the Lord. So the emphasis in the Bible on heaven is not geographical, it's relational. The the heaven is much more than a geography, it's a series of relationships. It's far more than a perfect location, it's an infinitely perfect set and series of relationships between God and his people. Second to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 21 verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, God's throne, saying, quote, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I want you to note that the word among shows up three times. We're talking about relationship. God himself will be among people. By the way, the word tabernacle means dwelling place, meeting place. The old tabernacle 
when Moses and then the temple where Solomon constructed, that was the meeting place where God met with his people, right? Heaven will be the tabernacle of God and man. It'll be the habitation. It's the place where God and humans will live together forever in loving fellowship. And Jesus said here, you will see my face. This is face-to-face intimacy with nothing in between. Some people would be very happy to live in a perfect heaven whether Jesus was there or not. Hell is wherever Jesus isn't. Heaven is wherever Jesus is. Which means you can have heaven in your heart now because you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart right now even though you're in a foreign place. This is an alien joint, just in case you wondered. This is not home. This is not home. I think most of you are old enough to probably know that, right? So heaven is all about redeemed people, knowing, loving, serving, worshiping the triune God. Because the sin that breaks our relationship with God will be completely done away. At the cross, our sins were forgiven. We were justified, declared righteous. That's, we're free from the penalty of sin. Right now, we're in the process of being freed from the power of sin. That's sanctification. We're being made more and more like Jesus every day. When you get to heaven, you're free from the presence of sin. Scripture speaks of being in a place where the memory of sin is no more. That's heaven. We don't even remember it, right? And Jesus tells his disciples, look, you can be free from anxiety because you have a person to trust, a place to belong, and a promise for the future. And then our old friend Thomas has a question. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, quote, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Here's the principle. Only Jesus, the perfect God-man, can bridge the infinite gap between holy God and sinful people. Only Jesus, the perfect God-man, can bridge the infinite gap between holy God and sinful people. Now, Honest Thomas is a pretty practical guy. He never fakes what he doesn't understand. Have you ever been in class, in college or high school, and the teacher's going, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and you go... I have not a clue what this person is talking about. What are they talking about? But nobody's going to raise their hands and admit they're an idiot. They won't do it. Thomas is the one who raises his hand and says, Hey, teach. I'm clueless. What are you talking about? Right? The rest of the disciples are very grateful that he asked the question that they all had, but they wouldn't ask. So think about his question. Most of you on your phone, you have a, a variety of map finders, etc. And when you use GPS... There's two things you absolutely must have, right, to be useful. Number one, what's your starting point? Where you are now. When I'm on GPS, they say, uh, should we calculate the trajectory or the route from where you are now or from your home? Well, if you're not at home, you better use where you currently are. So you have to have a starting point. And number two, you have to have a destination. You have to know what the destination is. You don't have that, those two things. The GPS is not useful. Thomas is saying, we don't know your destination. How we know the way to your destination. Now, that's not really true. The reality is they did know where Jesus was going. Jesus had been telling them for months now, I'm going back to my Father in heaven. Just one example, John 7, 33, Jesus says, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. Now, Jesus responds to Thomas with a threefold claim to deity. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Remember, John the Apostle records seven I am statements that Jesus made in the gospel. This is number six. I am the, re- the way, the truth, and the life. Now, remember, I am is the name of Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God used in the Old Testament by Israel. When Moses was at the burning bush and God commissioned him to go talk to Israel, and Pharaoh, and command them, let the people go. Moses says, when I tell them that the God sent me, what shall I tell them your name is? And God says, I am that I am, right? He's talking about the eternal, self-existent one who is completely independent from his creation. Tell them 
Yahweh is my name. That is my personal name that I want Israel to use with me. And Jesus, so when he says, I am, he's claiming to be God right there. And he says, I am the way. He did not say, I am a way. He did not say, I am one of many ways. He did not say, I will give you directions to get to heaven. Here's a map. He didn't say, I'll give you a smartphone with a GPS on it. He is the only way, the exclusive way to heaven. Think about it. Suppose Jesus said, I'm going to give you the directions. If you can follow them. I'll give you the directions to get to heaven. Well, here's the problem with that. Rule keeping, following directions, will never get you into heaven. Because if you're going to get to heaven without Christ, you have a lift, an absolutely perfect life, zero sin whatsoever, thought, word, and deed. And Scripture says, all have sinned. All fall short. So you can't get into heaven by following directions. A missionary once hired a guide to take him across a desert. And when they arrived at the edge of the desert, the missionary saw no path at all. No footprint, no walking path, no road, no traces of any human habitation. And the missionary asked the guide, where's the road? The guide looked at him and said, I am the road. I am the road. In other words, wherever the guide goes, that's the road. The only way for sinful human beings to spend eternity with holy God is for Jesus, the perfect God-man, to die in our place for our sins and rise from the dead and conquer sin and death and hell. He's the one and only way to have your sins forgiven and your relationship with God reconciled. That's the only way you get into heaven. Holy God does not tolerate sin, and if our sin problem is not dealt with, and Jesus Christ is the one and only way to have our sins forgiven, we don't get into heaven. The Father's house has many dwelling places, but guess what? There's only one door. One. Jesus said what? John 10, 7. I am the door to the sheep. When you, think about it. In ancient times, they would have sheep folds, generally made out of what materials were handy. In Israel, it was often rocks because they had a lot of them. And there's only one door created, an opening. And many, many times, they wouldn't even bar that door. The shepherd himself would physically lay down in the open doorway. The shepherd would be the door with his body. And if you were a wolf or a lion and you wanted to get to the sheep, you would have to go over or through the body of the shepherd. Jesus said, I am that door. You don't get into heaven. You don't get into the sheepfold of heaven except through me. I am the only access to God in heaven. Next, Jesus says, I am the truth. He didn't say, I can teach you the truth. He said, I am the truth. I am the source of truth. I am the embodiment of truth. The word truth means reality. It means the way things really are. Jesus Christ created the entire creation through his words. He himself is truth, and his word is truth. He's the ultimate reality underneath everything else. By the way, truth is not subjective. It's objective. Truth is, regardless of what you believe about it, regardless of whether you like it, regardless of whether you live accordingly, truth is it never changes. You can't make it up. You can have your own opinion. You can't have your own facts. You can't have your own reality. Reality is. Truth exists regardless of human opinion, and ultimately everybody's going to live inside the parameters of truth. You can choose to jump off a 10-story building because you say, my opinion is, is that gravity does not apply to me. And you can hold that opinion. However, you will experience the truth of gravity as soon as you step off the edge. At that point in time, you are going to live according to the laws of gravity regardless of what you believe about it. It's the same thing. Jesus says, I am the true way of salvation. I am the ultimate reality underneath as the creator of the universe. I am the truth. And the only way to know ultimate reality, 
The only way to know God who created everything is through our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of everything. Lastly, Jesus said, I am the life. Now, if you're a disciple, you would say, you know, we saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. I think he's credible. When he says, I'm the life, yeah, we've seen him. You know, he's raised three people from the dead. We saw that happen, right? Only God has life in himself. Your life is right now dependent. My life is too. Our life is not independent. It is dependent on the will of God to give you another breath. Because your breathing is there, by the way. And all things in creation are dependent on the independent life of the creator. Jesus references in John 5.21, he says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. Only the creator has independent life. All life in creation is dependent on the creator. It's derived life. So Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. And just in case you didn't get that, now he states in the negative. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, he's already indicated this before. Remember in the Beatitudes, he says, the way into heaven is narrow. The road, the gate is narrow into heaven. There's not many ways to God. There's only one way to God. Because Jesus is the only way that deals with the sin that separates people from God. Think about it. Every other religion, every other philosophy other than Christianity, without exception, depends on human performance to appease the wrath of their gods. I just saw a whole series on the Maya civilization, the Inca civilization, and they had to do sacrifice in order to appease the god, and you had to sacrifice that which was precious. And the most precious thing you sacrificed was your children. And they would execute their children in order to appease the gods. Right? The problem is with every other world religion, or even local religion, you have to sacrifice to earn your god's favor, and you never know whether it's enough. You never know. It is bondage. The Bible says that God's standard of performance is perfection. No one measured it up. And God solves that problem because only in Christianity does God himself pay for the sins of the sinner. Every other religion says, you have to sacrifice to appease the God. Jesus said, God's standard is perfection and you can't ever meet that. So I, God, am going to pay the penalty for your sin myself. The God we worshiped laid down his life on our behalf. Completely unique in any system of thought all around the world. Now, some people claim, and you will hear this, you know, I think all religions are equally valid. They all have something to say to us, right? R. Sproul, he comments, that's logically impossible. Anytime someone says, well, all religions are equally valid, then Christianity is valid too, right? because it's a world religion. All religions are valid, so Christianity is valid. Jesus said, I am the only way to God, which means there's no other way. So either Jesus is right or he's wrong. If he's wrong, then Christianity is worthless. This has no validity at all. But if he is right, then in fact, there is no other way to God. Jesus said, I am the only, the exclusive way to God, which means all other ways that claim access to God are false. And the only reason that works is because Jesus himself is God. Jesus is saying, look, you can bring your anxiety to the creator of the universe, knowing that he'll handle all things in your best interest. The fact that Jesus is the truth assures you that no matter what the culture shifts, no matter what your circumstances are, God's word stands forever. You can count on his promises the reality that Jesus is the life gives you assurance that heaven is your home and you will escape hell. Jesus says, I can make these promises because I am God. If you know me, you know my Father. Verse 8. Another disciple has a question. He makes a statement. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Here's the principle. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. His words and his works reveal that he is God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. His words and his works reveal that he is God. Now, Philip is the kind of seeing is believing. I'll believe it when I see it. Jesus is physically leaving. He's going to heaven. And he's essentially handing them off to God. And Philip says, you know, it would be really helpful if we could just see God. I mean, like, physically lay eyes on him. Have you noticed that people crave a tangible God? They crave a visible God. They, they, they crave a God they can perceive with their five senses. Yuri Gagarin was the first Soviet cosmonaut, and he went up into space in, I think, 63, 62, and he said, I never saw a God up there. Yeah, well, it's probably a good thing you didn't. You probably wouldn't come back, right? So we humans, we tend to rely more on what we see than on what God says. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and God says, his words, do not eat the fruit of that one tree, right? And when Eve saw the fruit, she ate it. Moses spends 40 days on top of Mount Sinai getting the word, the law of God, the law of Moses, right? The Israelites couldn't stand having an invisible, absent God. And what do they do? They said, Aaron, make us a God. Aaron makes them a golden calf, and they have a drunken orgy. They wanted a tangible, sensory God. And the disciples, they want a God they can see and touch with their hands. Why? They've been seeing and touching and talking with Jesus for three years. He has a body just like they do. He says, I'm leaving, and they're going, whoa, 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 you're going to hand us off to your father? Could we kind of see him like we see you? Jesus responds with a question. He says, look, you've had three years, 24-7, face-to-face contact with Jesus. Jesus has been saying over and over again, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. I only do what the Father tells me to do. They have seen hundreds of supernatural miracles that Jesus did. No one but God could do those. And Jesus says something utterly profound. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen God. Now that's remarkable because Scripture in the Old Testament says no one can see God and live. Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand and you can see the backside of my glory because if you see the full stuff, you're toast because you're sinful and I'm holy. What the disciples didn't understand yet was that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. Colossians 2 says, For in him, Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. I only think Peter got it once really well. They're in the boat, they're fishing. Jesus tells them to put the fish on the other, you know, fish on this side, and this huge catch of fish comes in, and Peter goes, I'm in the boat with God. What would you do? You would be like the guy in cocoon. You would jump out of the boat in the middle of the ocean because God's in the boat with you. Right? I mean, think about it. We, we, we get real comfortable with Jesus as God. Do we understand that they were face-to-face with God for three years and didn't really understand it? 
till after the Holy Spirit came. Jesus said, we have such an intimate connection that the Father dwells in me and I dwell in the Father. To know me is to know the Father. To know the Father is to know me. To reject me is to reject the Father. To look at Jesus is to see God enclosed in human flesh. And they got a little bit of glimpse of that in the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were blown away. The Apostle John refers to this eternal oneness in John 1.18. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. If you want to know what the invisible God is like, look at the visible Jesus. He came to make his Father known. They are one God in essence, different persons of the Trinity, but they are one God in substance. And the very words Jesus spoke came from the Father. Jesus said in John 8, 26, I have many things to speak and to judge you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I have heard from him, these things I speak to the world. Jesus says, if you have trouble believing I'm God based on my words, then look at my works. My works validate my words. My works prove, they demonstrate, they reveal that I am in fact God. Now the issue here is not evidence. The disciples had oodles of evidence. This is their faith, right? Verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, if verse 14 doesn't blow the top of your head off, you are not paying attention. Here's the principle. Salvation is the greatest work God does. And we glorify God when we ask Jesus to save people. Salvation is the greatest work God does. And we glorify God when we ask Jesus to save people. Jesus says, truly, truly, he's saying, pay attention, pay, this is important, pay attention, this is surely true. He said, when I go back to heaven, those who believe in me will be empowered to do greater works than Jesus did. Not greater in quality, but greater in quantity, not greater in kind, but greater in extent. Our world has a number of people who almost demand that God show up and do a miracle whenever they command him to, right? You see them on television. He's going to use them to heal this and solve that, etc. You know, I've, I've wanted to find out who these people are, so I'm on a hospital board. I could extend the invitation. You can come clean our hospital out. I'd be thrilled. Just come on over, you know, clean them out. Heal them all. Send them home, right? Make sure they don't ever get sick again or even die, right? It is self-centered arrogance to think that God can be used to bring you glory to yourself. So God's motive in empowering believers, you and I, to do greater works than him is to glorify himself, not to feed our own ego. So let's think about this. Jesus spent three years in public ministry. He spent almost all of it inside Israel. Even today, Israel is as big as it's ever been, except under the Solomon a dynasty, and it's 290 miles long from top to bottom, and in some cases only 10 miles wide. It's not a very big country. If you're in an Israeli jet, you can blow over that territory in about two minutes, maybe three. And if you're doing Mach Plus, it doesn't take very long before you're over the ocean or over Lebanon or over Jordan or something. So Jesus did many miracles inside this tiny country, and most of those miracles were physical. He imposed divine order and supernatural power over the physical domain. Healed the sick, stilled the storm, etc., etc. However, just because Jesus healed someone physically doesn't mean they were healed spiritually. How many people that he healed came to faith? Not many. Not many. When Jesus ascended into heaven... Acts tells us that there was about 120 believers. After three years, God the Son comes from heaven, and there's 120 believers after three years and hundreds of miracles. Now, 
when Jesus goes back to heaven, we're going to spend a lot of time on this in the next couple of months, the Holy Spirit comes, Acts 1, and Peter preaches a sermon, and one sermon, 3,000 people come to faith. One sermon. There is no greater miracle than when someone is saved from sin and death and hell into eternal life. And every Sunday morning here, we have miracles going on all the time. And it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit is here. And when the message is preached, the Holy Spirit takes his truth and pokes somebody in the heart with it and says, come. And they are saved through his power. And we see it happen. I have been in churches where I don't think the Holy Spirit has shown up in decades because the people didn't want him to. We are at a church where the Holy Spirit is working 24-7. Do you not understand what you are a part of? Unbelievable. It actually, it's believable. You know, you want to say incredible. It's credible because God does what God does. Within 70 years after Jesus' ascensions, there are millions of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. That's what I'm talking about, the greater works. It's not raising the dead. It's millions of people who have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And they're going to be in heaven forever. That's a greater work that the Holy Spirit empowered the believers to do. Bringing the gospel to the world was the greater work Jesus referred to because the Holy Spirit empowers believers to bring glory to God through the salvation of the lost. None of this would have happened if Jesus hadn't gone back to heaven. I mean, if Jesus hadn't gone back to heaven, the Holy Spirit hadn't come, his sphere of influence would have been limited by his own body. How many people could he minister? There's only one of them. The Holy Spirit now dwells in how many hundreds of millions of people around the planet? Working, 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 working. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. I once had a, a very, um, shall we say, secular woman come to me, and she goes, you know, I really like this verse. I mean, I just need to say in Jesus' name at the end, and then poof, anything I ask can happen, will happen, right? God will do whatever I say because I say in Jesus' name. He said, well, you have an incomplete understanding. That's not the only thing you pray for, right? There's a lot of commands on prayer. But here's the issue. What does in my name mean? Jesus will always say yes to prayers that are consistent with his person, his will. His purposes, His glory, His plan. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Those of you who are ex-Catholics, you know. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you is on earth. You're one of those on earth things. So when you say, Thy will be done on earth. It doesn't mean thy will be done in this schmuck over here on earth. It's thy will be done on this schmuck here on earth, which means me. Thy will be done in my life, through my life, which it's a submission. What did Jesus say in the garden? Lord, if it's your Father, if it's your will, may this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If you want Jesus to say yes to whatever you pray, then say and mean, thy will be done, and it might be no. And it might be wait. And it might be yes. But your Father knows best, right? So when he says yes, no, or wait, we know that he knows best because he loves us better than we love ourselves. Okay, let's review, and then Tom will come up and do prayer and praise. One, we all suffer from circumstances that are not optimal, and we can have anxiety over that. Jesus says you don't have to have anxiety. You can have peace because you have, one, a person to trust, the Lord Jesus Christ, a place to belong, heaven, and a promise for the future. I'm going to come and get you and bring you there. Number two. Only Jesus, the perfect God-man, can bridge the infinite gap between holy God and sinful people. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no other world religion, no philosophy, that can bridge the infinite gap between holy God and sinful people except the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Number three, 
If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. His words and his works reveal he is God. You know, when you talk to people, they say, well, you know, I think God is like blah, 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 blah. And then they kind of stuff falls out of their mouth, you know. I think God is like this. Well, you know, you don't get to make it up. He is God. He, you don't get to make up what he's like. He's told you what he's like. It's right here. And he sent us physical God in the flesh. If you want to know what God is like, read the Gospels. Study the life of Christ. You'll know what God is like. You know you're dealing with. And number four, you want to do the greater works? He's invited you to do the greater works, and he's commanded you to do the greater works. We carry the gospel to the nations. We are commanded to make disciples of the nations. It stunned me this week when I finally realized that salvation is the greatest work God does. I mean, I'm looking, I'm going, you created the universe, and you're telling me that the human heart, the conversion of the human heart, the new birth, regeneration from death to life, is the greatest, most powerful, most amazing work you do in all of the universe. I didn't think we were that important to you. I mean, I know we're that important. He says it. But when you think salvation is the greatest work God does, he's the most interested in that work. And he's most interested in you and I being involved in it. That's how we bring glory to God. Ask Jesus to save people. That's why we will pray in this room until Jesus comes back or you and I go to heaven, right? Amen. Amen. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.